Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago Day. If you're visiting with us, uh, I normally wear a suit, <laughs> but it's really warm out there. Well, I hope you had a good 4th of July and you made it to church, which, you know, that's really big for God. He's very proud of all of us. Um, If you have a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 2. And we're going through a series called Practicing Our Faith. And essentially what what we've been looking at this year is what does it mean for us to be people who don't only just speak of our faith or acknowledge it, but it actually shows up in our lives. And so we've looked at these rhythms of grace. Uh, What would it look like for us to actually practice things like generosity and hospitality and vocation and celebration, but they're all centered around one major practice, is that is we would hear and obey God's word and his spirit. And growing up in sort of a Western culture, what happens when it comes to how we think and how we learn is that we assume we have to go through kind of a learn, grow, go model. That there's certain things that we, we spend some time learning. We have to spend a lot of time doing that. We have to grow in that knowledge. And then we finally can go. And there's, there are things where that's really helpful. Like if I, I, I don't want you to start practicing medicine until you figure out how, right? You don't want to go to a doctor like, you know, I just heard about it last week and it sounded cool, so now I'm just handing out prescriptions. Well, some of you do want to go to that guy. I take that back. I know you. Um, but, but if you were to follow Jesus throughout the Gospels, you realize that he doesn't really subscribe to that model. He says, come and follow me. The hear and obey is really the predominant way that discipleship takes place in Scripture. And so what we're trying to do with the book of James is what, ask the question, what does it mean to really practice this faith? That our faith would be enfleshed in life and in action. And, and, and so we want to delve into that today in James chapter 2. James is writing to a group of people who have been dispersed, and they find themselves, in a sense, exiled within their culture. And yet, as it is throughout most of history, when the church finds themselves in culture, our natural predisposition is we want to make our home here. We want to be part of the culture that's going on. We want to adopt its basically its norms and its values and the way that culture interacts with the world. And that was happening to the people that James is writing to. And as it happens, he found them in a place where they were subscribing to faith, they were acknowledging it from a cognitive place, but when it came to how they actually lived, it didn't really match up. They had come to a place where they were, they were sure that they have received grace, and so obedience became an optional kind of question mark. And as he writes to these people, he writes to them essentially saying, listen, uh, there's several issues I want to address with you, but the root 
core issue is an issue of whether your faith is a living faith or a dead faith. For James, he didn't think there was an option of a mediocre faith, kind of an in-between faith. You either had a living faith or you had a dead faith. And I think the concern for all of us today is that we live in a culture where we want to subscribe to certain beliefs, but we really do think obedience is optional. And to that, James has a lot to say. So if you look with me at James chapter two, I wanna read the first uh, 13 or 14 verses to you. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our, Lord, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into our meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And so if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, for mercy triumphs over judgment. So where he starts out addressing this is in the issue, a problem that they were experiencing in their community, and the problem was uh, that there was favoritism that was being shown. And like most cultures throughout history, there was a class system there was a system, there were those who were wealthy and then there were, who were extremely poor and there was some group of people in the middle. And in every culture, people always seem to want to aspire to those upper classes as opposed to the lower classes. And what he saw happening was that when people walked in, the group would look for the people who had it going on people who looked right, who dressed right, who had the stuff, and they would show favoritism towards them. They were the people they wanted to know, that they wanted to be with, that they wanted to hang out with. But it was a, a socially and economically diverse environment. So there were people who came into the congregation that didn't have anything. And they were tr being treated differently. And what happened to this congregation, this community, is that they Basically, the cultural values of who 
is in and who is out had drifted into the church. And when that happens, what we tend to do is we tend to baptize those values and we believe that Jesus holds them too. That, oh, Jesus would really prefer this guy with money over this guy who doesn't have anything. That's who Jesus would want to hang out with. We know that that's not true. We believe that somewhere on paper. But when it comes to actually making the choice of who you associate with and who you don't associate with, we choose oftentimes what the culture values. Now, there might be a whole bunch of different reasons for that. Maybe the person who has much, you aspire to be like, and the person who has little, you don't want to be reminded that you might end up there one day. But for whatever reason, this favoritism problem shows up. And what James does is he, he pulls back kind of the layers of it. And he says, you know what's going on underneath this favoritism is judgment. You're actually judging people. You're deciding who deserves, who is worthy of not only your attention, but God's attention, where they sit, how they get treated when they come into the church. You're judging them as if you're in a place to judge them. And you're dishonoring the poor and you're judging them poorly. And essentially, as he pulls back this layer upon layer, that favoritism, which is sort of just, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's what we do in culture. TMZ and all of these shows, we want to see celebrities. We don't want to see what really poor people who struggle look like. And if we do, we create a reality show where we take advantage of their poverty, and then we call that entertainment. He says that underneath that sort of normal, seemingly innocent cultural value that has crept into the congregation is actually a very evil thing called judgment, where you're judging who deserves to and who does not deserve to. And then he kind of asks the question, do you really think you're in a place to do that? Because essentially the only people who really have the right to judge are those who have kept the law perfectly, those who have no need for mercy. They have no need for anyone to look upon them and not judge them because they have done it perfectly. And so he says, don't you know that if you break one little piece of this law, you're a lawbreaker and you are desperate for mercy. You're desperate for God to show mercy to you. And how can you not look at someone else and show mercy to them? Because mercy is the very thing that you're dependent on. And then he goes on to say, if you are not willing to do that, then you will be judged without mercy. Well, you can probably hear kind of a pin drop in the congregation Sort of like now, right? <laughs> it's kind of that uh-oh moment that you feel. For us, we could kind of get away with certain subtleties of favoritism. But when you recognize that we judge all the time. I mean, when I think of Facebook feeds after major political events, 
I think maybe it would be better not to look at that ever. Because what you have is you have uh, people expressing, and they're free to express their opinions on the right or on the left. The people on the right expressing this extreme judgmental concern many times with kind of a religious judgment. And the people who are more syncretized with culture are, are proclaiming the same kind of zealous judgment upon those on the right. And, and the sad part is that everyone believes that Jesus is on their side of the Facebook status, just liking everything they write. He's just like, oh, that's so good. Good for you. Way to go. Oh, you got a rainbow on your face. Like it, like it, right? He's just like, I... And we just are like, of course, he's with us. Of course, he's with us. And all the while, we, we through social media, express this great sense of judgment upon one another. That assumes Jesus is baptized into our culture. And that Jesus is, is uh, subject to the masses and what they like and what they don't like. And if you deceive yourself into thinking enough people on your side of the court make it so on either side, you have lost faith. You've lost what faith looks like in exile. Because in exile, this is not our home. No matter what the Supreme Court does, it's not our home. And so what does it mean for us to repent and move back towards Jesus and recognize that there is a narrow way here. There's a narrow way here called mercy triumphing over judgment. A faith that is willing to obey and that obedience is lived out, is enfleshed in action. There's kind of this unspoken argument that's going on in James chapter two. And the argument goes something like this. If we're saved by grace, then why worry about obeying? In other words, Paul says, for grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourself, not through works, so that nobody can boast. So if it's all by grace, then why worry about the obedience thing? Why can't we just do what we want to do, live like we want to live, which is going to essentially express culture in some way, and then we just ask for forgiveness? Let us judge each other. Because when we recognize that we've done it, we'll just go, hey, forgive me, sorry, and then go back to judging. This is a a contemporary problem with the church today too because the obedience thing is like, oh, that's been hammered on us or I have a bad memory of somebody who talked about a God who wants us to obey. But this is a God that wants you to obey so desperately because as James says, it is the law of liberty that leads you to freedom. And he so desperately wanted you to obey that he came and lived a perfect life of obedience in Jesus. 
He died the death of judgment that you and I should have died. He resurrected with a new creation life that he pours out into your hearts by his spirit so that you can obey the law of God in full freedom. He wasn't just suggesting, why don't you obey? He was saying, I will create a new people. I will write the law of God on their hearts. This is my new covenant, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. That sounds different to me than I agree with a doctrinal statement, that I signed off on a certain group of things that I was supposed to believe, that this was supposed to be a living, breathing thing a faith that is in flesh, that is lived out through the people of God who are in the world but not of the world, and yet they're expressing what this life looks like in real-time contemporary culture. The contemporary problem that we find is that faithfulness to God over against what culture wants puts us in this this real question, like, do I want to do that? Do I want to be faithful to God against my personal comfort? Do I want to be faithful to God against what I personally desire? Do I want to be faithful to God over and against personal gain for me? Do I want to be faithful to God over and against what people think about me? And as I ask myself these questions, I'm acting as if it's optional. That Jesus is going, man, I really hope you do, but if not, that's cool. Just hit the grace card again. And some of us are foolishness enough to believe that if we get enough people who believe that cheap grace really gets you to heaven, then we'll, like, it will be so. But Jesus is not interested in a populist vote. He's interested in you and I picking up our cross, walking in his dust, and experiencing the freedom of obedience in the way that he leads us to do it. And so James now comes around after kind of breaking down favoritism and the desperate need we have to to be people who live as though we have received mercy and points down to the deeper issue that this is not just an issue of need, it's an issue of belief. And does your belief actually live? Here's what he says in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for worship for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. As he comes to, the, to sort of the main point of what he's saying, he essentially lifts up this idea that that there is different types of faith. And he uses the demons as one example. And he says, you believe, you say you believe that, that there's one God, that's great. The demons believe that too, and they shudder. That even the demons have action to their faith, even though their faith is essentially a rebellion against God. They shudder. One of the things that I feel when I read that is I feel a sense of fear, and I think we're supposed to. We're supposed to ask the question that are we just people who are acknowledging cognitively that God is who he says he is? That we're people who are just subscribing to prepositions about God? Propositions, sorry. Are we people who are, who are just essentially saying, yeah, I checked the box, so that makes me so? And James is saying that's not a kind of faith that's living. In fact, you are sharing faith with the demons. They also believe just like you. And then he uses two other examples, and the first is Abraham. And what he's pointing to is the fact that Abraham believed God and the way that we know he believed God is because he obeyed God and he, sat, he put his son on the altar. And the belief credited him with righteousness but the way that we know he believed is because there was action to it. Now people could look at that and go, well, of course Abraham did. I mean, he's a patriarch, right? He is sort of the founder of, of Israel. I mean, he's the great-grandfather of Jacob, and uh, the grandfather of Jacob. Well, of course he believed. It's kind of like when we use examples of Jesus, and I'm like, hey, Jesus did this, so you should do it, and what's your first thought? Well, I'm not Jesus. Hello. He walked on water and stuff, too, and I've tried that. Uh, and so we can kind of write it off, like, well, of course, Abraham. But then he uses Rahab, and she is actually a Gentile. She doesn't really belong to the people of Israel. She's a prostitute. So she's on the have not scale. And she is a, a person who has lived in this Canaanite culture and in Jericho, which was the biggest, longest lasting city that had ever been. And when the spies came to spy out the land as they were going to enter Canaan and march around Jericho, she housed the spies. 
Now, there were travelers coming in and out of her uh, brothel for some time, and she had probably heard stories about the Israelites, these people for whom God had set them free from slavery in Egypt, and they were entering the land. And there was something about that God that she believed. And so she essentially commits treason. And keeps these spies in her house and lies to the people who are looking for them. And asks them, when you come to take the city, remember me and my family. She believed. But how do we know she believed? Because of what she did. Now, it's kind of like if somebody came in screaming that the building was on fire. And you sat there and went, "Uh uh-huh. I completely believe that. But Rick's sermon is so amazing that I just refuse to get up, right? If you really believe it, you get up and go. When you're at a green light, the reason you drive through it most of the time without anybody flying across, sometimes that happens, and then I'm judgmental, um, (laughs) hypocritically so. But you drive through it because you're going, I just believe that everybody else is doing red light, green light. And that seems to be working, and I'm going to trust it, okay? And the person who doesn't trust it that sits in front of you at a green light, what do you do? You don't go, well, they're just struggling with doubt, (laughs) right? No, you lay on the horn. You're like, you are a fool. What's wrong with you? He's saying that what we truly believe, there is action behind, and we're willing to live out this faith. And this living faith, it credits us with righteousness. It's because we've trusted in Christ, but that trust in Christ uh, and the receiving of his righteousness actually shows up as we begin to live righteously by his grace and by his spirit. And you can't separate the two like some of us goes, well, what comes first? Do I, I sit and I try to believe and I just dig down deep and believe, then I go and expect it to happen? Or do I just do good works and go, well, somewhere in here uh, I'll believe? But it really is both. Like you believe the house is on fire and you take a step to do something, to run, to get your kids, to call 911, to do something. Faith and action are tied together like that. I believe, therefore I act. And somewhere between belief and act, there is this empowerment of grace. And God says that it is freedom to obey. He created you to live as these peculiar people who are not swinging to the left or to the right, but you're committed to following Jesus because somewhere on that very narrow path is an experience of grace that brings freedom. Obedience to his commands is about freedom. Now, If you turn a couple pages back to the book of Hebrews or swipe your phone or whatever it is you do, um, Hebrews chapter 11 has this list of people, kind of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. And as you go through these, 
the writer of Hebrews is saying, these are people who are credited with faith. And I want you to pay attention to the verbs that follow the word by faith as you read it. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham, when called to a place to go, he went. By faith, he offered, uh, when God tested him, he offered Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed. By faith, Joseph spoke. Uh, By faith, Moses' parents hid him. By faith, Moses refused. By faith, people passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after people marched. Um, By faith, the prostitute Rahab welcomed the spies. Like there is this verb that is followed by the word by faith. And James is trying to get these people who are dispersed out into this culture to not get consumed by the values of that culture, to not cheapen grace by saying it's just something I cognitively believe, but to understand that biblical faith is always an active, positive response to what you believe is true. Biblical faith is always an active, positive response to what you believe is true. It always is. And he says to us that that kind of faith is living faith. And the opposite is dead faith. It's dead. There's no life in it. And it doesn't matter how chatty it is or how many Facebook posts it puts out there, it doesn't do the work. It's not real faith. He says at the end of chapter two, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's interesting that he uses that illustration because I think for most of us uh, that have experienced death, a lifeless body, a person who is no longer with us, we know how powerless both we feel and they are. And James points to that and says that is what faith without works is. It's just a thing that lays there. It has no power or life in it. It is a useless thing. And could it possibly be that the church's weak place in American culture isn't about how bad American culture is, but could it be because we have a faith that's more dead than alive? Love acts. When God said he loves you, he didn't send you postcards, right? He sent his son. His son who would take and enflesh his love in his own physical human body, who would display that love on a cross, 
who would conquer our sin and death and judgment through his power and victory, who would resurrect from the dead and give us new life by his spirit. That is a love you can touch and taste and feel and experience. It is a living love. And he invites you to respond to that living love with an active response of faith. And so as you come to this table today, In some ways, it's ironic that we come to broken bread and poured wine. We come to a dead body of Jesus. And in that lifeless moment on the cross and three days following, everyone thought, well, this this is useless. But in the power of his resurrection, all of a sudden, everything he taught and everything he was about came to life. And it's supposed to come to life in us. And so come to this table of bread and wine. Come dragging your dead faith if you need to and lay it at the foot of the cross and leave it there. Confess, repent, and lay it down. And taste and see the living grace of Jesus. And go. And be people who act out what you believe. What does it look like for you? What verb is rattling around in your head? That if we were to write your story this next week, what will we say? By faith you what? By faith you what? There'll be people here for you to pray with. The bread and wine have been set before us by Jesus, and the invitation is to believe, which is an active, positive response towards God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to this table. We come to this demonstration of your powerful, active, pursuing love. And my prayer for us today, God, is that you would, you would enliven us by your spirit and give us the courage to have a faith that acts, that works, a belief that responds to you, that puts feet to what we say we believe, and that, God, by your grace, you would meet us in the attempt and empower us to obediently enter into the freedom that comes when we follow your commands. So meet us here and take dead faith and do your resurrection miracle and make it alive again, we pray. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.